0: I'm Carrie, And I'm
1: Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends, that would be us, chat about books and reading with another book lover.
0: And we find book lovers everywhere, authors of all types, teachers, booksellers, slam poets, and publishers, just to name a few.
1: And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. So Carrie, we're excited to open up season five.
0: Yeah. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it, edging closer to 100 episodes. And this first episode in season five, we've got suspense writer David Bell, who is the USA Today bestselling author of 11 books, and his most recent offering hit the bookshelves yesterday.
1: So his newest book, Kill All Your Darlings, is the interconnection of all kinds of hot topics, showing the dark side of academia And what happens when plagiarism makes you the prime suspect of a murder? And if you add some professor ickiness that would make even the Me Too movement cringe... You have a page turner that book websites like She Reads and Frolic call a most anticipated summer read for 2021.
0: Gave me all sorts of things to mull over. So even after finishing it. And David is located here in Kentucky. He is a professor of English at Western Kentucky University and heads up their MFA creative writing programs.
1: But first, Carrie, we had two weeks off. What did you do with all of your rest and relaxation?
0: Uh, I read a lot. I have just been like flying through books, and that's pretty much it. I have been reading a lot, not really doing banjo. You know, I had, I had gotten really inspired by Steve Martin, and not really done too much. With Was banjo. that a bum
1: purchase? Was that like? Uh, a... No,
0: no, no, no. I am hoping that my kids can go back to school in August, and and I might have some time. It's just kind of hard. Everybody's all up in my business. And everybody has been all up in my business for 18 months. And I am hoping that we can go back to having a little space here soon. You know, and, and I'm, I'm just thinking that maybe that'll help.
1: Well, I spent a week with my family in San Diego, California, which is a place that we'd never been before. And it was absolutely lovely. The temperatures were like in the low 70s every day. And it was just. Everything was just so beautiful and the beaches and... Ugh. It was just yeah it was, great. it was
0: it was even though I told you to text me pictures you would text me pictures and I'm like I hate her <laughs> I sort of hate her being able to send me these cute pictures of sea lions and yes the sea lions gold. are so
1: cute they were so cute they're like fat little puppies that kind of yeah. look like and it was like a melodrama those sea lions they' like have these little pods and there's like one male and he would be barking all the time and telling all the females and all the like, the juveniles what to do and the juveniles were playing on the beach and rolling around. It was was like a soap opera. I could just sit there all day and just watch these sea lions on the beach. It was amazing. Unfortunately, I didn't get as much reading done as I would have liked. I'm a little bit in a reading slump, just a little one. I mean, I'm still getting through books, but not... As quickly as I would like.
0: Well, you do have some things you have to read here pretty soon. You do realize that, right?
1: I do. And that might be part of my reading slump, actually. is <laughs> <laughs> that I have things that I have to read. And that I think it might be binding me up a little bit. <laughs> that sounds um, bad, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that
0: sounds like you need some medicine for that. It does. <laughs> I'm
1: book bound. <laughs> Not that I don't want to read those books. I do. I think that, the, like, the little internal Amy might be, like, rebelling just a little bit of, against all these book clubs I've joined. But that's uh...
0: <laughs> <laughs> And as we've learned, my role in this relationship is to remind you you don't want to do that right yeah. yes job. or is do I get to ever say I told you so no, you can
1: yeah. yeah yeah I you answer. definitely can yeah okay. you can say I told you so okay. I, I'm very enthusiastic about things hard for a while until suddenly I'm not yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the way I roll but yeah
0: well but, I don't know what to tell you go, yeah. go take a laxative and, and get reading
1: <laughs> I think it's time that we start talking to David because that could really spice up my reading life
0: So, David Bell, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: So, I know you
1: teach at Western Kentucky University. That's in Bowling Green, Kentucky. But are you originally from Kentucky?
2: I am from just across the river. I grew up in Cincinnati, so not terribly far away. And when I talk to people in Kentucky who want to know if I'm from Kentucky, and I tell them I'm actually from Ohio, I mentioned that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was born in Dayton, Kentucky, and I hope that gives me some credibility (laughs) for people in the bluegrass state that my grandmother was born in Kentucky, so it's kind of like I've come back.
1: Yeah, it gives you some street cred.
0: (sighs) Well, let's get into talking about your reading and writing life, you know, going back to childhood. Were you a big reader as a kid? And if so, what genres did you tend to enjoy the most?
2: Yeah, I was a big reader when I was a kid. Mainly it started because my parents were big readers. My dad read tons of fiction. He read a lot of spy novels and westerns and mysteries and things like that. So if you were to ask me to conjure a picture of my dad from my childhood, it would be him sitting in our house, smoking a cigar, which he always did, reading a book in the living room. So he read a lot. My mom read a lot of biographies and things like that. So it was just kind of there that reading was part of life. My parents took me to the library a lot, and they took me to the bookstore a lot. If I think back on like the books that I really enjoyed in childhood, I can think of a couple books that were more fantasy. I remember reading The Hobbit when I was a kid. I think I was homesick from school or maybe I was just pretending to be sick so that I could stay home and read, but I remember reading The Hobbit just almost all in one day, just tearing through it and just being so fascinated by that book. And then I also the library in my grade school had this version of King Arthur and his knights by Mabel Louise Robinson, where, you know, she had taken like Sir Thomas Mallory's version and made it for 10 to 12 year olds. And I read that book over and over again. And I remember getting older and being so disappointed to find out that there really wasn't a lady in the lake and Mm. Excalibur, that all that stuff was a little exaggerated. I was very disappointed to learn that, and that was the beginning of my cynicism streak that I carry with me to this day.
0: (laughs) Well, you write crime, thriller, suspense. I don't know how you would prefer to label what it is that you write. Do you tend to read those types of books now as an adult, or do you stay away from what you write when you sit down to read?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I I read pretty much everything. And I read across genres and I'll read books of nonfiction. So I don't exclusively read thrillers. I certainly read them because I enjoy reading them and I've always enjoyed reading them. I don't like limiting myself to just one kind of book because I think there are so many great books out there, whether they're books that were published far in the past or books that are being published right now, that I wouldn't want to limit myself just to one thing. They call my books, domestic suspense, which I did not know was a thing until they were publishing one of the books. I thought I was just writing a thriller, and that's one of those subcategories, which basically means it's a book about regular people who have extraordinary strange things happen to them. So my main characters are not CIA agents or serial killers or even cops. They're just regular people with regular jobs who have something very strange happen in their lives, and then they have to figure out how to deal with it. So that's what they call domestic suspense. I don't think that really matters that much to readers, but that's what the publishers call it. Gotcha.
1: Well, if our math is correct, you've written about 11 of those domestic suspense novels. So what is it about the genre that you find appealing Well, I do like that
2: idea of the regular person being put in an extraordinary circumstance, because I think we all, you know, we see things on the news. In fact, it's interesting. My wife, Molly, and I are currently watching the true crime series on HBO, I'll Be Gone in the Dark about the Mm. Golden State Killer, right? Oh, so Um, good. Yeah, Yeah, which has done nothing but make me paranoid and unable (laughs) to sleep at night. And we were discussing, like, what is the appeal of a story like this? And part of the appeal is just to say, you know, what happens when something so bizarre and so disturbing happens in the middle of just regular suburbia? If you look at where these crimes were taking place in Sacramento, it was just like this middle-class, wholesome street of ranch homes and whatever. And I think there's something disturbing and fascinating about that. And so to me, that's what's interesting about the books I write, at least for me anyway, is that what happens when a regular person who doesn't have training in firearms and martial arts and crime investigatory techniques and all that, but when some disaster falls into the middle of a regular life and then how does that regular person cope with that? How do you survive when you're asked to do things that are not necessarily in your skill set, to go investigate a crime, to go, you know, fight off an intruder or whatever? So that's where the appeal lies for me, to take a regular person and subject them to a lot of pressure and see how they respond.
1: So I think it's an age old question to ask authors, what inspires your work? And, you know, you're talking about watching um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Do you get ideas from the news or are they things that just come to you or how do your books come into existence in that way? Well, the ideas
2: come from all over the place. I have some of the books have Loosely inspired by new stories or real crimes that I've either read about or heard about or sometimes they're very loosely inspired by something that someone tells me. You know, I mean, inevitably you have friends and you're sitting around talking and one of them tells a story about like, oh, you know, in my town in high school, such and such happened. And I'm writing a book a year and like all authors, I'm always on the lookout for an idea So, if someone tells me some unusual story like that, or if I read something unusual or hear about something unusual, then I'm naturally thinking, could that be a story someday, or could that be a part of a story someday? And then other books, it's just what I completely make up. For most authors, and it kind of goes back to childhood, you know, when we're kids, we create these scenarios where we fantasize and imagine and play games. It's a what-if game. You know, well, what if this happened? What if a person was in this situation? And that's the fun part of writing. That's where the imagination takes over. And I can just let my mind run wild and imagine what would happen if a person was in this situation? What would inevitably happen after that? So the ideas have come from all over the place, over these 11 thrillers that I've written.
1: So you teach English at Western Kentucky University and you co-founded the school's creative writing MFA program. And your new release, Kill All Your Darlings, is about that world of academia, but it shows the warts of that world. And I'm wondering if you could just give us just a little snippet of what your book as a whole is about.
2: Yeah, Kill All Your Darlings is about a creative writing professor, a guy by the name of Connor Nye, and at the beginning of the book, he's had a great thing happen to him. He has published his first novel. He's published a thriller, and it's the day the book has come out, and we learn that Connor has had a rough time in the past. His wife and son died in an accident about five years earlier. He's been in a fog of grief about that. He's really been struggling to write, struggling to publish and be able to keep his job and get tenure. So the fact that this book is coming out is quite an accomplishment that he's been able to do this. The problem is when he comes home from his book launch, there's a person in his house, a young woman who he doesn't recognize at first. But he realizes that this woman is one of his former students, uh, a young woman named Madeline O'Brien. And the catch is that Madeline disappeared two years earlier, and everybody thought Madeline was dead, including Connor. So much so that Connor took Madeline's honors thesis, which was a novel, and he went out and published it because he thought she was dead and he couldn't write anything. So the book Connor has published was actually written by Madeline. And now Madeline is back in his living room saying, dude, that was (laughs) my book you published. I want the money or I'm gonna tell everybody that you stole my book. And then the next day, the police come to Connor's house and say, hey, you know that book you published? The details of the murder in that book are very similar to the details of an unsolved murder here in town. And those details could only be known by the killer. So how did you know it? Mm. So f- things get worse from there, of course. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's the basic setup to the book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I still, to some extent, and I think this is sort of normal, that young people, when they're in college, they sort of revere their teachers, their professors a little bit. So did you worry with this being a novel that kind of sheds a light on the world of academia that isn't always great? Did you worry about what people would think about academia and maybe they would wonder or worry like, is this what really happens? Is this the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about? I
2: didn't worry about that, because I think that I really like books, and I try to write books that are highly entertaining. Obviously, I'm writing thrillers, so I want the reader to be turning the pages as fast as possible and saying to themselves, I just want to read one more chapter. But I also want to write about things that matter. I want to write about issues that matter, and not in a way that's preachy and not in a way that's that's foregrounded ahead of the story, so clearly this is an issue in our society, not just in academia, but we see it in business, we see it in politics, we see it in other places in entertainment, that anytime time there's a power imbalance, there's the opportunity for the person in power to abuse that power, to sexually harass people who are beneath them and don't have as much power to stand up for themselves. So it's part of the culture. It's part of the landscape. I'm not saying that it's like every professor at every university does this, but it's there. I think that sometimes people might think, well, you know, we had the Me Too movement, so we kind of took care of that. And we've certainly made strides over the last few years, but it's not something that entirely disappears just because we're more aware of it. So it's, it's part of life. And Books reflect life. And so for this particular book, I'm writing about the issue of not just the the tenure issue, not just him plagiarizing a book, but also the sexual harassment of students that can happen in academia. So it's part of our world and a writer can't turn away from the things that are in the world, I don't think. Mm
1: -hmm. The title of your novel is really great, Kill All Your Darlings. And it relates to William Faulkner's statement about being a writer, and he said, "In writing, you must kill all your darlings." So, can you discuss what that means in terms of yourself, and also the ways in which you you kill your darlings as a writer?
2: I think it's a pretty universal experience that when writers write something, it, there's a feeling that is almost a high that a writer gets. You know, kind of like a runner's high. I only know that secondhand because I don't run unless something's chasing me. <laughs> um, But I think it's like that. I think it's when things go really well for a writer. When a writer just gets into the zone, it's a high. It's this amazing feeling of, yeah, everything's clicking, everything's beautiful, I'm a genius, right? (laughs) And somewhere down the road, either a writer looks back at their own writing, or an editor, or a second reader, or somebody comes into the picture, and they say, to the writer you know this isn't really working as well or maybe you need to cut this part out or maybe you spent too much time on that and that is killing your darlings taking that beautiful thing that you have written that you think is wonderful and amazing but maybe it doesn't need to be in the book or maybe there's too much of it in the book or whatever and that's an incredibly painful experience for all writers i think it's at getting feedback on my writing, I liken it to the stages of grief, right? Like someone comes along and says, well, you need to cut this. You need to kill this. You need to get this out of there. And, you know, there's like anger and, you know, <laughs> bargaining and, and all that before you finally get to the point where I accept and say, yeah, actually, that." editor is right or that agent is right or whoever is right to say yeah they're right that does need to go and sometimes it can it can feel very painful like you know you're chopping off you know one joint of your finger or whatever but that is part of the process of getting something written that's what students learn that's what writers learn when they work with editors and so it's it's just all part of the process Mm.
0: So when I was reading the novel, I really vacillated between feeling sorry for Connor and also thinking his attorney (laughs) says something to him at one point. She asked him if he got his PhD in stupidity. Mm -hmm. And so I love that line. So as he's one of your darlings, is that feeling of both caring about him because he's a character that you've created, but also wanting to strangle him? Is that something that you experienced?
2: Yeah, I do feel that way about him because I think that's what we're all like. It it doesn't matter how smart we are or how educated we are, we screw up in life. Part of being human is to screw up, and sometimes we screw up enormously. And again, that's a painful part of life. Just like I was talking about the editing of a book is a painful thing for a writer where you have to look at something and say, I have to cut that thing out looking back at things when we screw up in life is painful Um, and we may not want to look at those things we may not want to acknowledge those things but we know we have to face them if we want to be healthy and move on and learn from them so to me the fact that connor is a complex character who has admirable qualities and has made this tremendous mistake in the way he has stolen this book from his student. To me, that makes him a very human character. And I would expect that readers will read about him and sometimes want to shake him, right? I think anytime we read any book, but especially in thrillers, there's an element of looking at the characters and saying like, how did you get yourself into this mess? How are you going to get yourself out of this mess? And so I do think people will probably have that reaction to him. I hope that by the end of the book, they see the journey that connor is on they see the way he changes they see the way he tries to reckon with the mistakes he's made and i hope they see that whole picture of him by the time the book concludes
0: well and i think that relates to what you said about you know writing about the domestic suspense you're writing about everyday people who haven't trained for they're not police officers they're not detectives they don't know really how to behave so so they are going to make more mistakes than than somebody that that's a spy, you know, that has spent 40 years in in a career of espionage.
2: Yeah, and I mean Connor is a perfect example of what we see in our culture. Say for instance when we see politicians get in trouble, the cover up is always worse than the crime. It's mm-hmm. always if you just came clean right away, <laughs> you could have avoided a lot of trouble, but it's human nature, we all can relate to saying Oh, I got caught. Maybe I can just paper over this somehow, or figure mm-hmm. out. It's like when you're a kid and your parents catch you doing something. Your first instinct is like, "Oh, can I just blame it on my sister?" And it never works because right. you know you're always going to pay the piper at some point. Uh, maybe people can relate to that too—that idea of like your your natural instinct is just, can, "Can I get out of this somehow?" But you know, you can't. Eventually, it all comes around somehow.
1: Well, and your novel definitely doesn't make men look great. Connor isn't a bad guy, but he's surrounded by other men who don't treat the young women in their lives with a lot of respect. When did you start writing this novel and did the Me Too movement of 2017 influence your writing?
2: I've wanted to write a book on a college campus for a long time, set in that world. And I've tried to write this book a couple of different times in different ways and it never really came together and it never really took off, including like back before the Me Too movement started was when I was first thinking of like, write about a professor and a professor who writes a book or like a student who writes a book, something like that. So the idea predated the Me Too movement. Obviously the Me Too movement was such a huge cultural event that it has to influence what comes after it in some way, shape or form. So that was certainly part of it. But, I mean, I've been in academia in some way, shape, or form for the last 22, 23 years when I first went back to graduate school. And every stop along the way, or just about every stop along the way, I saw some form of harassment of students or mistreatment of students. It's always been there in my mind the way this harmful thing happens to an individual and also to the community and the people around them. So it wasn't as though just the Me Too movement was some flashpoint for me, but it's obviously there because we can't pretend like it's not there.
0: I want to ask you about tenure. You you mentioned that and, and it's part of the novel. It's the impetus that makes Connor do some of the things that he does. So Talk to us a little bit about why something that, that most people would say, oh, that sounds so boring, you know, academic tenure. Why is something like that, why would that make for a suspenseful novel?
2: Well, the old joke about academia is the reason the battles are so fierce is because the stakes are so small. Um, <laughs> but, but the truth is that academia is a weird place. It's a mm. unique place. And if you think about the way people get trained for these jobs, most people in academia have a PhD. If you have a PhD in the humanities, say, like English or something like that, you're being pretty specifically trained for one or two jobs, to be a writer uh, or a scholar and an English professor. And so what academia offers you through tenure is job security, that most people in life don't have. We all know people who have been laid off from a job or they get to middle age and they get laid off from a job and they have a hard time finding another job. Academia offers you not a lot of money, contrary to what some people sometimes think, but there is job security and tenure. And the reason I think that tenure is such a big deal is because, and Connor is in this position in the book, imagine that you are early middle age or reaching middle age, and you, you want to get tenure, if you don't get tenure, you lose your job. And what are you going to do as a like 45-year-old person whose whole life has been spent in academia? Where are you going to go to find another job? So tenure is something that I think people intensely want. I mean, there's the achievement of it, that you get tenure because you've achieved certain things in terms of publications and all that. But there's also that it is a form of job security that lots of people don't have in the world. And let's face it, you know, I know our economy is starting to do better, but I mean, economically, the world can be a frightening place. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when you reach middle age, And you might have children or you're trying to make house payments or whatever. So I think tenure can be a really fiercely contested thing because it represents a lot of security for people who may not have that security anywhere else in life.
0: You know, I haven't read all of your other novels, but are there other seemingly mundane topics that you've worked into your other books that have led characters to make sort of morally questionable decisions?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, usually the the books start with something relatively small and innocuous. Like if you, I'm trying to think back, you're asking me now to remember what my books were. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to be a test. Um,
1: it's a quiz. It's like, oh gosh, I would fail
2: that. People always come up to me, they're like, you know that character in that book that you wrote? And I'm like, what? For instance, I think um, one, one of my books, Somebody I Used to Know, which came out now like five or six years ago, it, it begins with the main character goes to the grocery store. And the, the main character is middle-aged. And he sees a young woman who looks a lot like his college girlfriend who died in a fire when they were in college. And he goes to talk to this young woman, just thinking, just to say, like, are you related to this family? You know, blah, blah, blah. And when he goes to speak to this young woman she runs she runs out of the store and then the next day he finds out that that young woman has been murdered and has his name and address on her body in her pocket so it's like that kinda thing like the seemingly mundane like you go to the grocery store you go to do whatever and somehow you get tied up in something much bigger than you could ever imagine. That's why I've stopped entirely going to the grocery store. <laughs> I don't know. Right. So it's that kind of thing of like where just regular life can spin out of control very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, between the title of your novel and Connor's dog's name is Grendel, the novel feels like it has all these Easter eggs for English lovers, English majors. Is that something that you do in all of your novels?
2: Yeah, you know, I didn't really think of them so much as Easter eggs because I thought, like, well, certainly, like, what else is an English professor going to name his dog? But <laughs> Grendel, right? And, like, we were all forced to read Beowulf in high school, probably, so you yeah. should remember who Grendel is. Um, it seems like a perfect name for a dog. Yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking of that. I mean, the title, Kill All Your Darlings, obviously, if you're a creative writing student or a creative writing professor you know that phrase, I think that the reason the phrase works is because if somebody who does not know where that phrase comes from or what it means, if they walk into a store and they see a book that's called Kill All Your Darlings, they're going to think like, wow, that's a suspense novel. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet some people get killed and spoiler alert, they do. And then if you happen to know that, then, you know, yeah, there's another level to that phrase that it gets into the creative writing thing. It's a weird experience to go through naming the book. I don't have any children, so I've never named a child. But now that I've had to name books, I realize what an enormous responsibility that is to name a human being. Because there's always like infinite possibilities to name a book. And if you give it the wrong name, then like, oh my gosh, nobody's going to buy it if the name is wrong. So, But that, that title seemed to work perfectly once it finally came
0: to me.
1: I've heard some authors say that usually it's the publishers who named the books, that the name that they have for the book, you know, in their head is oftentimes not what it ends up to be. So have you been able to name a lot of your own books?
2: Well, no, I usually say I'm batting about 500. And I think that I was on a three book streak. Uh, lay over the request and kill all your darlings where they took my title early on. Now the book that's coming out next, it feels like there's been a months long, like storm and drong about like going back and forth about what the book is going to be named. But yeah, it's usually, it's that the, the publisher has an opinion to be perfectly honest. It's usually the sales and the marketing people who have the most to say about the title because they're the ones who have to go out to the bookstores and to the retail establishments and convince them to put the book in the store. So they want the title to be something that they can take out in the world. So it's not unusual for them to reject an initial title and there to be some back and forth. That too can be killing a darling because Mm -hmm. you might have this wonderful title in your head and then someone somewhere in the publishing house decides that's not quite right you know or target doesn't like that title whatever and then you have to go back to the drawing board but again that's just like that's just all part of the give and take of the business
1: well early on in the book there's a passage that I th- I thought was really intriguing where Connor is he's talking to another colleague in the English department and she apologizes for not making it to his book launch but says that his book isn't her type of thing and that she gets it especially if you're going to a beach but not for actual reading. And this character's attitude might reinforce what many people assume about English professors, that only the classics matter. And so I'm wondering, is this something that you have found to be the case in academia?
2: Yeah, it is. You know, the English department at WKU is a big place. It's the biggest department on a pretty big campus. So there are a lot of people in that department and there are a lot of people who teach in that department who have been incredibly supportive of me um, who read my books who read other thrillers you know I can remember one of my colleagues saying to me you know I haven't read your book yet because I have to read Karen Slaughter's new book first and I was like oh great I have a colleague who reads Karen Slaughter So there are people who are like that, people who come to my events, and there are people who have expressed that attitude either to my face or behind my back, or they make, you know, it's kind of like a veiled comment that might come my way, like, oh, you know, you write your book so fast, you know, and I know what that means, right? Of course, I should be laboring over my book for 10 years or whatever. (laughs) So I've seen experiences across the board. I think the thing that that I have seen that would disappoint me the most is when I've had colleagues. In fact, I don't think any of them are still at WKU, but you know, I've had colleagues, not just at WKU, but at other places who will teach undergraduates creative writing. And if the undergraduate comes in and they want to write a fantasy story or some sort of genre story, they will tell them that they can't do that, that they Mm -hmm. like, they express disdain, for that kind of genre writing. And I think, why on earth would you tell somebody who's 18 or 19 or 20 years old that you can't write the kind of story they want to write? I don't know if that student might become the next J.K. Rowling or the next Tolkien, right? I mean, the odds are long against it for anybody, but, but why would I try to tell somebody the subject matter of what they should be writing? If they want to write it, they should be able to write it. And it's not up to me to impose my opinion on them or for anybody else to impose their opinion about the subject matter. So that's one of the things that I do think happens with some people in academia. It's a way for them to make themselves feel superior to, you know, the great unwashed masses who read thrillers <laughs> and romance novels and things like that. I have always wanted to write books that as many people as possible can read and enjoy and talk about. I, I This is my subjective take on it. Why would I write a book that I didn't want a lot of people to read, right? I want as many people as possible to read my book. That's me. If other people feel differently, that's fine. But I don't want to impose that view on other people, especially undergraduates who are learning how to write. But one of the things I really like about teaching creative writing to undergraduates is that I will go into a creative writing class, a fiction writing class with undergraduates, and there will be, you know, 18 or 20 students there. There's no standard among the creative writing students. They cover the gamut of what students look like at WKU. It's You see just the most eclectic, diverse group of students sitting before you and then their writing bears that out. They write the most eclectic weird surprising creative bunch of stories you know and and to go back to what we were saying earlier some of them are genre stories some of them are fantasy some of them are mystery some of them are really literary and and mannered and experimental and and it's everything and to me that is one of the things i enjoy most about teaching those classes, that the students come in and they bring a lot of creativity and a lot of surprise to the class. I want to read all that different stuff that they produce and that's what they usually do.
0: So because the character of Connor has some similarities to you, you know, being a college professor, being a a writer of, of a thriller, are you ever concerned or have people that have read your book, The arcs Up To This Point, ever thought, that your book is autobiographical or is that something that you even considered at all?
2: I never worried about that until now. Now I'm worried. <laughs> we've made you paranoid. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'm already, I'm already worried about the golden state killer coming into my house. Um, you know, I, I don't worry about it and I've never worried about it. Obviously there will always be people who will make assumptions about the author and assume that there are similarities between the author and the character. I mean, I hope that people don't think that about me because usually I'm writing about murder and mayhem and I, and I, I haven't been <laughs> You seem yet. like a pretty normal yeah. person. Well, I, I, I always say if you write these things, you work it all out in the book and then you're normal <laughs> in your daily life. I always say a book is not really complete until it gets into the hands and the minds of the reader. The the interesting thing about writing is that writing is co-created in a way between the writer and the reader. I put words on a page, the reader reads the book, they conjure images in their head about what it looks like. And everybody's image in their head is different than everybody else's. That's one of the beautiful things about reading and writing is that we all conjure a movie in our head about what we're reading. People are free to conjure what they want to conjure and people are free to think what they want to think. I'll go on record now. I've not stolen (laughs) writing from my students.
0: I've never had a student.
2: I mean, I've had students disappear from my class, but that's just because they're not good students. Um, As far as I know, no students have ever disappeared or been murdered. So let's hope that continues.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about Kill All Your Darlings. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
1: We are back with David Bell and with Carrie. Carrie, what has been on your nightstand? What are you reading?
0: Well, I just finished an audiobook. It's called OC Daniel. And so the ah. letters, uh, capital O C D in this book by Wesley King. And it was narrated by Ramon Deocampo, who also I started listening to it and I was like, his voice sounds really familiar. Well, he also narrated. Hello Universe, which I had listened to not too long ago. So this is a middle grade book about a boy named Daniel who, if you have OCD or you know somebody who has OCD, you are going to pick up very quickly that Daniel also has OCD because he has these compulsions at night that keep him awake for hours and hours and hours. Daniel, though, does not understand what's going on with him. So It's a story about him and how he becomes friends with a girl who also has some mental health issues. And she thinks that her father was killed and she believes that her mother's boyfriend did it. So it has two tracks. You know, it's about Daniel going through his issues with his compulsions, but it's also about how he's helping his friend and she has some Far fetched ideas about what may have happened to her father. By the end of the book, Daniel, through this friend, Sarah, he realizes what's going on with him, that he's not going crazy, you know, that it's a brain disorder, and that he should probably get some help for it. But then you also, and I won't give away what we discover about Sarah's dad, but we also find out what happened. And so that mystery is solved. So I enjoyed this. I mean, you know, as a person who has OCD myself and my son has OCD, this one definitely jumped out at me. I wanted to see what it was about. And I like that, you know, we talk about, our books windows or are they mirrors? And so typically I like to read books that are more windows, that give me a view of somebody whose experience I have not had. But I think especially for kids and, and young people, it's sometimes important for them to have mirrors. And so I think that this is a good book for a kid who has been diagnosed with OCD and to see somebody coming through that and realizing what's going on. Or, or, you know, maybe there's a kid who is just discovering they have it and makes them feel not so alone. And that's part of what happens with Daniel and Sarah. They realize that they both have mental health issues and there's a little less suffering. Because they aren't alone. They at least have each other to rely on. So I recommend that. You know, if if you have OCD, if you have a child who has OCD, that would be a, a good book to read or listen to.
1: And there's a little bit of a mystery in it. it and there's like. a little
0: bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. So David, what have you been reading?
2: Yeah, I'll make a plug for a book that is coming out in August. And it's called Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. Richard Chismar, uh, he's been an editor and he's written a lot of short stories and he's co-written some books with Stephen King. This is his first novel that he's written alone. And it's actually, it's a really interesting book because it's, it's a novel, it's fiction, but it's presented as though it's a true crime book about mm-hmm. someone trying to solve an unsolved murder in a town in Maryland. So... The book has pictures and diagrams and like documentary stuff going on that makes you think you're reading nonfiction, although it's really fiction. And as as I was reading the book, I was thinking to myself, wait, this is all made up, right? Or or is it? (laughs) You know, and it's one of those things. So it works on that level. Rich is a really, really talented writer. The murder in the book has taken place in the 80s or something like that. So there's like some Feel of like 80s nostalgia and things. I said the book is it's like if Ray Bradbury had written something like In Cold Blood. Um, It's a really unique book and it's coming out in August. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, Chasing the Boogeyman, it's a really great story, really well done. It'll be messing with your mind. You'll be trying to figure out like, is this real? Is this not? You know, and Kind of like when we hear these true crime podcasts and all of a sudden, that's so crazy that that must be made up, but it's real. (laughs) This is so real that you're thinking like it must be made up and it is. Anyway, so check (laughs) that one out.
0: And I don't know if it's just because I'm so immersed in the story, but I do that all the time. You know, I'm constantly having to check in with myself and go, is this real? What part of this is real? What part of this is maybe based in fact? Historical fiction messes with me all the time like we were
2: talking about earlier it's all it's always interesting to think of where do writers get their ideas and and what is the germ of truth that goes into the book and where does it become a flight of imagination i think we always think about that when we read books so yeah, yeah. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, the book
1: I'm going to talk about touches on some of those issues. So I read a book called Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin that was written in 2011. And this story is a mystery. It's set in Southern Mississippi in a very small town. And there are two main characters, Silas and Larry. And Silas is referred to by the townspeople as 32 because he was a baseball star in high school and that was his jersey number. And he was so good, he got a scholarship to play at Ole Miss for college, but he comes back to the small town to be the town constable. And most of his duties are more like being a security guard or directing traffic when school lets out. But recently, there were two murders in town, one of a known drug dealer and the other a young a female college student whose family owns the largest business in town, a lumber company. And our other character is Larry. And Larry is sort of a pitiful character. He's sort of a sorry sack. And he grew up in a family where his father was an alcoholic and always thought of his son as a disappointment because he wasn't tough enough. He's kind of a sensitive kid. He liked to read. He was a bit of a loner and he never had many friends. And Larry's desperate to have a friend and will do things that are somewhat ill-advised in an effort to impress people or to keep a friend. So when he's in high school, back in the early 1980s, he became the suspect in a local case of a missing girl because he was the last person to see her. And her body was never found, and he didn't confess, so he was never arrested. But a suspicion of him persisted for decades in the small town. So the connection between these two characters is that they were friends for about four months when they were 14 years old. Silas and his mother lived briefly in a hunting cabin that was on Larry's family's property. And Silas is black and Larry is white. But after four months, an incident occurs with Larry's father and Silas rejects Larry. But they still share a history in a sort of a coming of age type of way. So if you jump ahead to present day, Larry comes home from his car repair business, which he goes to every day, but no one ever brings their cars to him because they think he's a serial killer. And there is an intruder in his house, and he's shot in the chest. And the sheriff thinks that Larry shot himself, but Silas isn't so sure, and so he is trying to figure out the mystery. And this is where the story begins, and it weaves together issues of family secrets, of race, what it means to be a friend, and ultimately, loneliness. So in The Afterword, I read something by the author where he talks about how he incorporated some of his own life experiences in this book. And one of the most important scenes in the book is where Larry goes on his first date. And that comes straight from the author's life. Except in real life, this was a story that was humorous and that he would often tell at parties and book readings. And he said it always got a laugh. But when he tried to write it to include it in a book, he said he could never write it in a humorous way. And that in the book, the scene is ominous and humiliating. And I I found this dichotomy fascinating. This is a mystery, and it definitely has a gritty Southern Gothic vibe to it. And Southern Gothic usually has elements such as eccentric characters, grotesque situations, and a feeling of decay, poverty, and violence. And this checks a lot of those boxes you have the heat and the kudzu and there's venomous snakes in the swamps and the vegetation that's described almost seems suffocating. Anyway, I enjoyed this mystery. It's a slow burn. It's not really a page turner in that way. So the pace doesn't pick up until the second half of the book. So if you need a fast paced thriller or a page turner, this may not be your jam. But the book gave me a lot to think about and the gears in my head are still kind of working on it because I just finished it a few hours ago. But Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter was an Edgar Award nominee, which is an award given by the Mystery Writers of America each year. So I would recommend it.
0: Cool. All right. Well, we are going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask David his three about me. We are back with David Bell, and he's going to answer his three about me. So question number one, you are a movie lover, so we're interested in what your film-watching life is like. What movie in the last year has stuck with you that you would recommend to others?
2: For the last 15 months, I've been watching movies at home and not going to the theater. But movies that I've seen lately that stuck out to me, I just watched a movie called Together Together, and it's about a middle-aged guy played by Ed Helms, and he's divorced, and he wants to have a child. He's always wanted to have children, but he's not in a relationship, and his marriage broke up, so he uses a surrogate to father his child, and... And the surrogate is played by Patty Harrison. You watched that show uh, with Aidy Bryant, Shrill. Patty Harrison had a small part as the receptionist, and she was very funny in that. So the, the story is about these two people who are very different, who become friends as she is the surrogate for his child. And, and so the movie is a lot about friendship and family and, you know, what does it mean when people are connected? By something like, you know, having a child and all that kind of stuff. But they're not romantically involved at all. And that just came out. So that one was really very good. And I enjoyed that. And the and the, the two lead actors are great in the story. It's it's funny, but it's also serious. So that's one I watched recently that, that has stuck with me and that I really liked.
0: I saw Tenet. And it is... That inception flavor. It was done by the same director, Christopher Nolan. Like, I love Inception. And so Tenet was kind of the same way, like Mind Bendy and one of those films where you watch it and then as soon as it's over, you know that you need to go right back and watch it again because of all the things that you missed. So if you like Christopher Nolan movies and Mind Bendy, that's a good one. I, I
2: have a love hate relationship with him just because of that, because I'm too lazy to <laughs> want to have to go back and watch the movie all over again (laughs) i don't want to think that much but yeah Yeah. no i haven't i haven't seen it yet but i've heard a lot of good things about it i I know you know it's gotten a lot of attention
1: so question number two so like connor nye and kill all your darlings you also like to walk in the cemetery in fact your first book was called cemetery girl is the cemetery near your house your favorite one or are there other cemeteries you also enjoy
2: yeah, I mean, I, I've always been fascinated by cemeteries, and it just so happens that when we moved to Bowling Green and we bought our house, there's a cemetery just two blocks away from our house. And, and actually, the cemetery and the and there's a park side by side, which is an I always thought it was just an interesting combination because you can go to the park to exercise, and you're exercising to try to keep yourself out of the cemetery, <laughs> which is right next door. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I have an affinity for the one by our house. Um, There are two parts to it. So there's a very old part that's on one side of the road. A little bit of Bowling Green trivia. Duncan Hines is buried in that cemetery. Um, um, If you've ever been like, I've always wanted to see the final (laughs) resting place of Duncan
0: Hines.
2: (laughs) It is in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, but yeah, so actually I feel an affinity for that just because it's here and I walk there every day. I'm from Cincinnati, like Cincinnati has one of the most beautiful cemeteries you'll ever see, Spring Grove Cemetery. And so if you're ever in Cincinnati and you're interested in cemeteries, then go, go look at Spring Grove Cemetery and drive through there. It's a really beautiful place with some really good bird watching and things like that. So yeah, I've always enjoyed walking through cemeteries.
1: The most fascinating cemetery I ever went to, we went to Ireland probably six or seven years ago, and we were at this little coastal town south of Cork, and the name of the little town is escaping me right now. But we were just wandering through town, and there was this old church, and the cemetery had headstones from the 10th century.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: I mean, just to think about who those people were and what had happened to them, what their lives had been like, how they eventually met their demise. It was all just very fascinating. just love old cemeteries.
0: All right. Question number three. So my 17-year-old daughter has been college shopping a little bit, and we recently were in Bowling Green so she could check out WKU's campus, which is gorgeous. So aside from the cemetery, which you've mentioned, if somebody was coming to town to visit, what are the top activities, places I would recommend they check out?
2: Yeah, you would definitely want to go to Lost River Cave. Obviously, all around Bowling Green and all around this part of the state, there are lots and lots of caves, and there's Mammoth Cave up the road a little bit, and occasionally we just have sinkholes show up places. <laughs> but Lost River Cave, if you've never been there, pretty much in Bowling Green, it's a, it's a large opening to the cave, and there's a river that runs through the cave. You can take a boat ride into deeper into the cave that you have to pay for. And if you're claustrophobic, there is one small part of the boat ride where you have to duck because the ceiling is low. So, so if you don't like that, don't do it. But when you get past that part and you get back into the cave, it opens up. It's a stunningly beautiful scene to be in. And then also the, the cave mouth itself, back in the old days, like in the 30s or 40s, it was a nightclub. And so that you can see pictures of how, you know, they have this giant chandelier and bands would come and play there and people would dance the cave fell into disrepair for a while. People were using it as a dump. Now it's been cleaned up and you can have your events there. You know, like a friend of ours had their wedding reception there. It was used during the civil war, like the North and the South quartered there and kept their horses there. Like every town, pretty much in the Eastern third of the United States, People claim that Jesse James hit out there. Um, (laughs) There's no evidence of that, but they like to throw that in just in case you want to like go there and say, oh, I bet Jesse James. But that is something that I think everybody should do uh, when they get to Bowling Green is is go to Lost River Cave. It's a fun thing to do and to check out. And obviously, speaking of sinkholes, there's the Corvette Museum. Um, (laughs) If people don't know this, every Corvette in the world is made in Bowling Green. So there's the factory and there's the Corvette museum where you can see like pretty much every model of Corvette that's ever been made, which is, I'm not even like that much into cars. I mean, I was when I was a little kid, but like, but it was still fascinating to see all these cars because especially the older ones, the ones from the sixties are so beautiful and, and interesting looking. And so you can do all that. And if you want to buy a Corvette, and I know everybody does. You can watch them make your Corvette in the factory and then your oh, wow. Corvette comes off the line and you can just like jump ah. right into it and drive off in it. So, you know, you can go to the museum. The sinkhole has been fixed, so you can't see Well,
1: that. I was going to ask about that. So for people who don't know, there was a huge sinkhole, I don't know, several years ago. I don't know how many years ago and swallowed up part of it, right?
2: Yeah, The basically I think it was the entryway, the lobby of the Corvette Museum collapsed, there was a sinkhole underneath it. And for a while, and I thought this was really enterprising, they left the sinkhole there Mm -hmm. and sold tickets to see the sinkhole.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um,
2: And it really became popular to go and see the sinkhole because there were like, I think there were maybe eight vintage Corvettes got swallowed up in the sinkhole. I haven't been to the museum since that happened, but you can go to the museum and you can see, I think they have on display some of the Corvettes that got crushed in the sinkhole. (laughs) But that's a thing we live with in the Bowling Green area because we're on this giant cave system. So just every once in a while, you'll turn on the news and it'll be like, oh, there's a sinkhole in the mall parking lot or there's a sinkhole, whatever. (laughs) I'm kind of hoping that whatever sinkholes were going to open underneath my house have already done that and like it's not (laughs) going to happen. So now I'm worrying about the Golden State Killer. (laughs) and by the way I know I know they caught the golden state killer but yeah they haven't caught all the sinkholes so (laughs)
0: yeah well David thank you so much for being our guest we really appreciate you joining us and we love talking with you about your book
2: I really appreciate you having me on and and taking all this time and being so thorough in your questions so I really do appreciate it and thank you so much for having me on
1: Did you know that you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our website? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Do you know another great way to get the word out? Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. The more ratings we have, the more likely that our show will pop up for listeners looking for bookish podcasts. And writing a review is great too. If you leave a review, we'll read it on the air. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to finally a huge thank you to forward radio 106.5 fm a grassroots community radio station in louisville kentucky you can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org